Think about your community. What's changed in the last 15 years? 30 years? Or how was your parents' childhood different from your own or that of your own children? And then ask yourself, what do you imagine your community will be like in 15, 30, or even 60 years? I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss big changes in small towns. Communities grow and communities shrink. Changes in communities and new leaders can lead to reinvention. But reinvention, while moving people forward and bringing in new folks and their brain power to a community, can also leave some people behind. Communities can also be impacted by faceless and seemingly impersonal forces, national and global economics, climate, and weather. Nostalgia for the past is complex. Back on the farm, in the days of the factory, But also, in those days, people died from measles and had smallpox, and there wasn't Wi-Fi or grocery delivery. Or talking cars, so that sounds pretty uh, bad. Is that a Knight Rider reference? (laughs) Well, no. I was thinking, I mean, yeah, of course, like, kids, right, from Knight Rider. But I was thinking a little more present day, you know, like, I can talk to my Subaru, and it it knows when to call people and what to do. My car doesn't talk to me. (laughs) So my dad grew up working on his parents' farm, gathering eggs, milking cows, herding turkeys. Herding turkeys? So apparently they had like free-range turkeys on the farm. So before that kind of thing made you an like alternative farmer, it's just like what farmers did then. They're just turkeys out running around the fields. Hmm. Interesting. So, and they also had guineas. Do you know what a guinea is? Is it like a pig like a like a guinea pig i don't know what is Uh, it i didn't know i wasn't sure what it was either uh i like to think about my grandpa like farming tiny cute guinea pigs but that's they're small birds anyhow he uh, dad grew up feeding ducks weaning pigs and doing a bunch of other things that make me want to search for the hand sanitizer so many of us have farmers in the roots of our family trees but it's likely that at some point one of your ancestors decided to make a living doing something else That was my dad and his siblings. Grandpa Timmerman farmed until he was 85. 85? Are you serious? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he could have outworked me to the very end and kicked my butt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I spent a lot of time with you, and I, yeah, I would agree. (laughs) Before Grandpa died, he told Dad he wanted the farm to stay in the family. But after he passed... None of them wanted to take care of it. The upkeep, the property taxes, the ever-shrinking profit 200 acres of corn and soybeans could produce. But a lot has changed since Grandpa first pulled up his bibs and got the dirt of his 200-acre farm under his nails. For one thing, the faces of the farm workers have changed. American farms aren't necessarily farmed by Americans and rely heavily on the labor of immigrants. Technology, like GPS-guided tractors, has also altered the nature of the work itself, requiring fewer eyes to acres. Hardworking farmers founded our nation. In fact, George Washington once announced, I had rather be on my farm than emperor of the world. Dad didn't like the early mornings milking cows or the after-school chores, but he also remembers the good things. Neighbors helping each other clearing a fence line, baseball games after church where players were rounded up by bicycle and decided on a yard in which to play. seems like the farther we get from the fields, the more we miss them. The fewer the farmers, the greater the nostalgia. And then there were the factories that helped to build the American economy. 
My mom was born in a holler in southeastern Kentucky. Her dad was a coal miner, and her mom was a homemaker with only a third-grade education. Their lives were simple and mainly revolved around the small community of Stearns. My mom was something like fourth-generation Appalachian. This was an area of the country that at the time of my mom's birth in 1951 didn't have much contact with the outside world. How in the world did they make it out of the holler in Kentucky to Muncie, Indiana? Well, (laughs) that's a good question, but by the late 1950s and into the 60s, the mines in that area had started to close, and representatives from auto factories from Indiana and Michigan made their way into those haulers and passed out flyers that promised jobs with higher pay and safer environments. Now, my grandpa's mine had not closed, but at the end of a long day and digging and hauling coal out of the guts of mountains... A man in a suit handed him a flyer that advertised jobs at Delco Battery in Muncie, Indiana. Good old Muncie. Good old Muncie. The pay was more than double what he made, so he and his brothers applied, were hired, and moved their families north. When they arrived, they only had enough money to rent a two-bedroom house with no indoor plumbing to share between the two of them, along with their wives and eight children. There are some things worthy of nostalgia, Not having plumbing and living with 12 people, that can't be one of them. Yeah, I would not want to go back to those days. But what the factory and that cheap home allowed them to do was to save enough money to buy their own homes that had plumbing that turned into bigger homes and better lives for their kids. And middle class life for them became a reality. Many of my aunts and uncles worked in the auto factories. All of them drove nice cars, were on bowling leagues, had swimming pools, all on factory salaries. But by the time my cousins and I were adults, those jobs were no longer an option. I knew by the time I was a teenager that the opportunity my grandparents pursued for a better life no longer existed. And now a community once known for high-paying factory jobs is struggling to define what's next. Roots are grown, and well, they are uprooted too. When it comes to communities, one thing's for sure— They are always changing, and along with it, the lives of the people who call a place home. That's the case for today's story that comes to us from Greeley, Colorado. It was shared anonymously to Adam Swanson and was a part of the Facing Project led by the University of Northern Colorado. The evolution of a small agricultural town. An anonymous story is told to Adam Swanson from Facing Change in Northern Colorado, performed by Carl Frost. The sheer size of Greeley has really changed. When I was a kid, 35th Avenue was the city limit, and now it's out by Windsor. Ames, the community college, was just a small deal out in 4th Street. Then they moved and it started to grow by leaps and bounds. It's a great college, I got two degrees from there. The biggest difference between Greeley now and Greeley back when I was younger is how people make a living. The Momforts and the Fars were the old money. The Momfords started a meatpacking plant a long time ago and far supplied the cattle. If you worked at Momfords, you were essentially a butcher. However, you made a lot of money. Workers started at 15 bucks an hour, and back then I think minimum wage might have been $1.20 or something. On top of that, Momfort would let them take as much meat as they wanted home for their families for free. This was the agricultural money that provided a living for the people of Greeley. People were graduating and getting jobs. I don't know how it all worked out, but the union ended up coming in. After that, Momfort said, Well, guys, no more free meat. You guys got to pay for it now. There were also a lot of good-paying jobs at Kodak, making film for cameras. 
Now nobody uses that anymore, so they're almost out of business. Today, fewer than 0.3% of Americans live on commercially viable farms. And that move away from the land impacts more than our economy. Agrarian philosopher Wendell Berry believes that it has had very negative consequences on our culture and sense of place. Berry writes, As long as the diverse economy of our small farms lasted, our communities were filled with people who needed one another and knew that they did. They needed one another's help in their work. And when that work disappears, when parents leave farm and household for town jobs, then the children, like their parents, live as individuals, particles. As the local influences weaken, the outside influences grow stronger. And so the drugs and the screens are with us. That seems kind of bleak. Uh, yeah, it does. And I kind of feel personally attacked about the screen references. I'm sure most of our mm -hmm. listeners yeah. do as well. We all kind of have a, of a screen addiction, right? And we all have those issues. But as for the drugs he's referring to, I think he's referring to the opiate crisis. Uh, and I hope that the reality is not as bleak as he paints it. But community in Wendell lifetime has definitely eroded. People are volunteering less. The number of lonely Americans has doubled in just a few decades. And today, 61% of Americans are lonely. According to the World Happiness Report, the amount of unhappy Americans has doubled since 1990. So, Wendell Berry would point to this lack of connectedness and say, See? That's what happens when we move from homesteads to suburbs and factories. Yeah. And manufacturing jobs in the U.S. have been in steady decline as well. In the 1950s, a third of Americans were employed in factories. Today, that number is less than 10%. And overall, workers today make 6,600 less a year than 40 years ago. Yet the expense of living has increased. Today's workers are more likely to have student loan debt and higher housing costs than their parents. In Greeley, Kodak laid people off. Different factories came and went. And with each new development, the community asked, well, what's next? And for Greeley... Part of that answer was weed. Now the new money is for marijuana. All of a sudden there were all these new jobs and everyone wanted to move here. People flocking to Colorado. I mean, Greeley was always a real conservative city where they wouldn't even let people sell liquor until about 1974-75. Everything was over in Garden City, a town incorporated to keep the vice out of Greeley during Prohibition. That's where the liquor stores are now, and that's where the pot growers and the marijuana stores are. There are rumors that years ago there were brothels down there and actual tunnels where higher-up people from Greeley could sneak on in. Pretty crazy stuff. There's a lot more cultural diversity. When I was a kid going down to school, there might be one or two Hispanics, you know. I don't think I saw my first black person until I was maybe 12. It was very white. Very conservative town. Now the culture and the population has really grown. Somali refugees, I think, are being taken in too. But my God, Greeley is really different. It almost looks nothing like the small place I knew before. Just everything. The people and the businesses and everything is so different now. I don't know if it's all good or all bad. I guess we just have to wait and see. Greeley is growing, more than doubling in size since the 1970s. Denver is an expensive place to live, so people who work there move to the suburbs and settle down in a place they can afford. To read a newspaper article about Greeley's growth, 
It seems that some don't choose Greeley for Greeley, but for its distance and affordability from Denver. Greeley's growth is straining the community's water resources and eating up farmland. It's foreseeable that Greeley could become a city of 400,000, but would it still be Greeley then? I think about the Timmerman family farm when I read Wendell Berry and wonder what life would be like for our family if we were still on the land. Berry writes, The old complex life, at once economic and social, was fairly coherent and self-sustaining because each community was focused upon its own local countryside and upon its own people, their needs, and their work. That life is now almost entirely gone. It has been replaced by the dispersed lives of dispersed individuals, commuting and consuming, scattering in every direction every morning, returning at night only to their screens and carry-out meals. Neither of us have been to Greeley. I think when we hear this story and comment on it, we're not really talking about Greeley. We're talking and thinking and feeling about Union City, where I grew up, Cowan, where JR grew up, and Muncie, where we both live now. We have seen our communities change, and you have probably seen yours change too. For their book, Our Towns, the 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, James and Deb Fallows traveled to towns all across the U.S., even our own, and saw communities facing all sorts of change. They write this about their observations. The question is not whether these assessments seem precisely accurate to outsiders. Their value is in giving citizens a sense of how today's efforts are connected to what happened yesterday and what they hope tomorrow will bring. We want to welcome to the show James Fallows, the author of Our Towns and a correspondent for The Atlantic. Thank you for joining me. Uh, JR, thanks. It's a pleasure. Now, you and your wife, Deb, have been to many communities across the U.S., both large and small. Throughout your travels and observations, what have you found leads some communities to thrive and others to struggle? Well, of course, it's a big, big question, and or it's a big, big question with big answers, and and answers that that vary with the huge diversity of American communities. There are some really, really small communities that just are overwhelmed by. Uh, changes in demographics and changes in economics. And so you see some places that just cannot find a way forward. There are other places, uh, their scale might be 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, which have lost a factory or lost the mainstay of their previous economy, but are able to reconfigure themselves for the, the time ahead. And we talk in our book about, you know, dozens of attributes that connect these communities. If I had to boil them down to two or three right now, one would be a clear understanding of what this place is. A formula for recovery that almost never works is when a community says we're going to be the next Burlington, Vermont, or the next Silicon Valley, or the next Austin, Texas, or the next anything. Because really the path forward for communities is being the next version of themselves and recognizing what the manufacturing heritage has left there or what the national uh, natural landscape permits or what might attract young people back there. So I think a clear-eyed sense of the past of the community and how it leads to the future is a very important one. I guess a second factor I would mention is communities that find ways to make themselves open 
to new people, new ideas, new businesses, new anything. By definition, if a community doesn't attract new people, it is going to wither. So a conscious effort to be a place that welcomes new people and new ways of being seems to be a theme that runs from the Central Valley of California through Mississippi, through New Hampshire and other places. And I guess the third would be recognizing innovative ways to reconfigure public institutions and public-private partnerships to make places more attractive, whether it's recreation facilities downtown or public arts or innovative uh, public schools. So there's a great big um, menu of possibilities that different communities have, have tried. But I would say those are three that really stand out for us over the years. I want to go back to your first point of the clear understanding of place and what and who you are as a community. How does community go about figuring that out? I think that that, that is, um, we talk in our book about something called knowing the civic story, by which I mean families have their own story, companies have their own story, nations have their own story. If we think of the United States, we know there is a national story of coming, you know, people coming from different parts of the world and the great sins and tragedies of American history and the ways in which the United States has struggled always to be a better version of itself. And I think the idea of the American idea, the American myth, the American ideal, those are our things, all things which affect our politics and can draw Americans to the best versions of themselves. If communities have a sense that we are a place that builds things. We are a place of adventurers. We are a place of natural beauty, whatever it is. And I'll give you just just one, one or two examples. One is my own hometown of Redlands, California, which is a very small place in inland California near San Bernardino. It's very different from LA or San Francisco. And the idea that, that Redlands' founders had is this is a place that cares very much about the public and having some way to make it a sort of consciously um, unified community. It's, it was ethnically divided about, you know, both um, Anglo and Latino mainly, uh, but they found ways to have public concert series and a big public library and frequent parades and other things to say that the people who founded this place cared about events and institutions that would have a sense of oneness for the town, and that's going to guide us in, in the future. I'm thinking also of the city of Fresno, California, which is a much larger place. It's a, it's a Central Valley agricultural hub, and it recognized that its heritage is very closely involved with agriculture. So in reconfiguring itself for a high-tech future, it's thought, how can we be the place where advanced technology meets our agricultural strength? And so that's been one of the many ways they have tried to, to position themselves. And you know, Erie, Pennsylvania thinks of itself as a place that has welcomed immigrants and refugees from around the world. Now 10% of its population is actual refugees. Um, Charleston, West Virginia has lost its coal and chemical industries, but is finding ways to have the same sort of hardworking skills. And on through a long list, if you know the civic story, what brought people to this part of the of the uh, the country, what they what ideas they used when building their community and where they might lead in the future, that's I, I think what it, what is involved in the sense of place. 
And connecting that to changing economies, you've written that if someone loses their job in middle age, they never become whole financially or socially again. And you and Deb take that seriously. And when people are in their 50s or 60s and they describe what they've lost when a mine closes or a factory closes, that's really devastating to hear. But you've also indicated that you take it seriously when communities look at their future prospects and they're listening to folks in their 20s and 30s talking about these new opportunities. Are communities doing a good job of investing in their younger citizens to make sure that the what's next for them becomes a reality? And are there good examples? I think a number of communities are trying to do that. And let me say a word about the background, that uh, the, the premise of your, of your excellent question, which is that my understanding of American history both from having lived through an awful lot of it myself. I'm from the dreaded baby boomer generation. Mm. Also having lived outside the country a lot, I've lived in China and Japan and other parts of Asia for a long time and Europe and, and Africa. And also have, from having studied American economic history is that the one constant through every decade of America's economic growth has been dislocation. If you read the history of the 1840s or the 1870s or the 1920s or any decade in our history, you find businesses rising and falling and people being dislocated and all the trauma that brings. But then the the power of the American model, the American idea, the American culture has been fostering people who will create new opportunities and find new ways to 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 make a, a path for themselves. That's why you know the settlement of the country has changed so much over the centuries, why the industrial base has. And and a constant through this long saga is that people who are mature adults, let's say now in their 50s or beyond, if they are part of this dislocation, really for them, the reality is they are not able to start new careers and new opportunities just because that is the cruelty of life. Again, I speak as an older person um, my, myself, and, and it is important in the social compact to recognize that and make sure people have as rich a lives as they possibly can. And the real test is for their children and their grandchildren and for the new people coming to the communities are there new opportunities. And the places we've seen that happening most effectively are ones that are working innovatively with schools and with companies and with local institutions and with public-private partnerships to say, how can we equip the next generations for the new opportunities that, that are going to, to come? Um, I'll, give, um, I'll give an example from South Carolina. Uh, the city of Greenville, South Carolina, 30 plus years ago, most of its economy was textiles. Now, none of its economy is textiles because those mills have gone away. They went to the Caribbean, they went to Asia, they went other other places. But the new economy that's evolving in Greenville is, is, is high value manufacturing mainly. It's uh, the BMW plant and GE has factories there and a lot of startups and innovative public schools there in Greenville have worked with a racially very diverse population there and with many people who are economically poor and, and, and left behind to find innovative ways to train them in the public schools for these new opportunities. So I think a, a, a sane public policy has to recognize both that there are people who are dislocated as they have been all through America's history and being as supportive as possible to them 
while also recognizing that the next generation of of uh, entrepreneurs, of workers, of students, of Americans needs to be supported. Mm-hmm. In your reporting, you've also found that a majority of Americans trust their local governments and communities, but only 36% found that the country as a whole is headed in the right direction. Do you think the national outlook is changing, or will we always mistrust the federal government? I think there's something that is eternal in this tension in American life. That is the struggle between the outsiders and the central authorities who are trying to impose their ways on on local people and something that is a modern phenomenon. The eternal phenomenon is back from the days of the Constitution, of trying to have the balance among the states and various ways in which locality and local option and states initiatives, these have been both for good and for bad, have been a feature of American life from the get-go. That was part of the Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson struggle um, long ago. There's something recent that has occurred where over the last, let's say, 30 years or so, there's been a steady decline in people's both trust of national-level authority from uh, either governmental authority or corporate authority, and their sense of well-being and optimism about how the national level prospect is faring. And I think an important, and I lead from that to sort of two, two derived points. One is we are actually in a troubled time at, at national level governance. And no matter what your national level political loyalties are, you can't feel very positive about this as a time uh, for national level functionality for the United States. That functionality I view as matching America's great resources to America's great challenges. And that's not really a good matchup right now. The other point that's worth making is how different American life seems to most people at the level of American existence they encounter firsthand. And here's what I I mean. There was a very uh, extensive national survey released last year by the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative-leaning think tank based in D.C., where they surveyed people all around the country in every region, every racial category, every income group. And they found that most people felt quite discouraged about the national news they heard every day, the part of the country they were reading or seeing about on the news, but they felt quite encouraged about the part of the country they actually lived in themselves. Mm. By about a 60-40 margin, people were pessimistic about the country. By about a 70-30 margin, they were optimistic about where they lived. So that tension between local level functionality and the image of a sort of collapsing national, collapsing rest of the country is something that is significant now. And it's worth seeing how the local level functions can be extrapolated on a larger scale. Do you think that that view of of the national level could change and what would it take to change? There's a histor- there's a historical analogy that is positive. Yeah. And there's one that's negative. The positive one would be what happened a little more than a century ago, uh, after the the original Gilded Age, where almost every problem America has now in the second Gilded Age it had back a hundred plus years ago in the first Gilded Age of income inequalities and dislocations and rapid migration and the rapid rise of fortunes and and the mistrust. Trust in, in institutions. 
And, and that led in the early 1900s to a widely dispersed range of reform movements. You had the labor movement arising in the early 1900s. You had the women's movement and the good government movement and the environmental movement, and all those other things. So it's possible that the strains of this era will lead to the local level reform sensibilities being projected on a national scale. So that is what I hope will occur. And what it would take, I think, is an awareness of people who are working on these local reform movements that are part of something larger. The other historical analogy, which is not so <laughs> encouraging, would be the, the long withering of the Roman Empire, mm. and where you had the provinces in Germany and France and, and Spain and all the rest realizing, well, maybe they could just do things on their own in the absence of Rome. So I hope that the first example is the model for us and not the second. What will it take for us to make sure that we follow that first model and not fall toward the second? I I have my own list of reforms that could make a difference in national level uh, politics, uh, which which we can save for another time. Mm-hmm. I think for most people in their lo- localities, it's finding ways to continue engagement at the local level, whether it's participation in public programs or simple tree planting efforts, which is a very widespread movement and the most effective thing that most people can do locally for, for sustainability, um, pitching in on, on school, school reinventions and all the rest. So it's, it's, it's conscious engagement at the local level connected with a sense that there are people doing things like that in thousands of other communities too. And so being aware that there is some emerging movement with emerging playbooks of what communities can do to um, have more sense of wholeness and oneness at the local level, connecting to a sense of oneness uh, statewide and region-wide and eventually nationally. Mm-hmm. I asked our listeners if they could sit down with you and ask you any question, what would that be? And Allison Matson from Muncie, Indiana asked, while all communities are different, are there common initiatives cities and towns should undertake to have a genuine quality of place? That is a fascinating question. And this community of Muncie, where you've spent a little bit of time and will be returning for more reporting, is quite fascinating in its own right, too, because of the the radical experiment underway there right now with the public, with the community schools, Mm -hmm. where Ball State uh, University is taking responsibility for the Muncie community schools, which has not happened in this way ever before in the United States on that scale. Mm -hmm. So I I think that Muncie is is a laboratory for a lot of what is significant in, in the United States now. I think that it's we have in our book a checklist of various uh, traits that we find in common uh, among successful communities. For example, that big universities, in this case, the example would be Ball State, feeling themselves responsible for their communities. And also the community in turn taking seriously community colleges and the non-four-year you know, research uh, university, university institutions, which are so indispensable in connecting uh, people who need opportunities with the opportunities that this um, that this era ha- has created. I guess I'm trying to think of one or two specific things. Well, actually, here would be two that may seem surprising 
but they, they, I've come to to believe in after being on, on the road over the last couple of years. One is recognizing that public libraries, which we often think of as the institutions of yesterday, mm-hmm. are actually the institutions of today and tomorrow. That I, I think when people look at this era in American history, they will one of the things they will isolate is the way that libraries have repositioned themselves more nimbly than almost any other institution that you know we had from from centuries ago, and finding ways to support public libraries and recognize them as a hub of the way that communities are having a sense of themselves, that would be one. The other would be to take seriously the role of of public arts in the broadest sense as something that that really make communities work or not. And and here's what I mean here. And, And 20 or 30 years ago, if civic planners were thinking of how to attract new activity to a town, they might say, well, let's have a tax cut here or a special industrial zone there or something in a very uh, simple dollars and cents way. More and more, we heard that all of the intangibles of making a community a place where people want to live really are what matters of having walkable spaces and having arts that engage the community and having events and having museums and having ways to encourage children to take pictures or make paintings of life in the town. So things that I take more seriously now than I, than I used to would be libraries and public arts. And of course the ever present constant of a brew pub culture, mm, nice. <laughs> which has become a, a, a very important marker of communities that are on the, on the way up. Yeah. I could get behind the arts libraries and beer. Sign me up. And if we're following that to say that's what can help uh, communities create a uh, quality of place, then that sounds good to me. Well, James Fallows, the co-author of Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America and correspondent for The Atlantic, thank you so much for joining me. Um, JR, it's a pleasure and honor to be able to talk with you and your listeners. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jamison. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm